hear me now? There we go. Wrong way. All right. Good morning. We are in Genesis chapter 14 this morning, and it's a very uh, interesting, very confusing passage in some ways because it's a, it's a narrative of a battle between uh, five kings and four kings. So you have nine different kings involved, and it talks about these different kings, and they all come together in a battle. One of the things I thought about, for those familiar with Tolkien, was battle of nine armies instead of five. Is a lot of confusion going on here, and there's a lot of um, back and forth within the narrative. So I'm going to try to help us first just to get through the narrative and kind of understand what's being said and what's going on, and then we will work towards application for our lives and application for us as believers in Jesus Christ. So let me read through the narrative, and then we'll go a little deeper into it. It says, In the days of Amramphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Shadalomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemember, king of Zeoboam, and the king of Bela, that is Soar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chador Leomor, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Chedor and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakarathaim. And the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as Elpeon in the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishphat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amal- Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Now, all that is saying, I wanted to read it because I wanted you to feel the confusion and all the different pieces, but all that is saying is that this Ketalamur was a strong king who had came into this area, had won battles, and now had this area under his rule and his dominion. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and these other kings that are with them of the five total are enslaved to Ketalamur and his, uh, his armies they probably have to give him some sort of tribute. They probably owe him something year by year. And he says, if you don't give that to me, you're going to get it. All right. So then in verse 8, then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma and the king of Zeoboam and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Catalamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amramphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. This is tar pits. It's full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. So the battle, so Sodom and Gomorrah and the, these other two kings, they decide, we don't really like 
having to give tribute to Ketelamer. We don't want to deal with him anymore, and so we're not going to do it. And pretty soon, of course, they hear, here he comes. He's coming with a large army, so they go out to meet him as he's coming with his army to destroy them. They lose miserably. They're chased into this wilderness area that's full of tar pits. Some of them fall in or hide. The Hebrew word here is, is very indeterminate. But somehow they're in these pits, and some of them run into the mountains. And instead of giving tribute, they lose everything. They're completely wiped out. In the midst of this, because Lot, as we learned last week, has moved into the area of Sodom, has moved into this area, because he's there, he's also taken and his possessions by this king. So, one had escaped, came and told Abraham the Hebrew, I want you to notice Something's changed here in the narrative. Suddenly, Abraham isn't like this character that's really close to us. He's a character in like a play. So he's, he's referred to out here. Um, and I think that that change is important for us to note because something changed in the narrative style. Why did it change? It changed from more of a narrative of a person's life to more of like a historical account. Um, he, he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. Abraham has some allies too. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, then he brought back all their possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abraham with 318 guys, we're not told how big these, this other army is, but we know it's pretty significant. 318 guys. This number 300 if for the children um, comes up in another army against a very large army. And does anyone... Remember that story. 300 people, all that it took to, to defeat an entire huge force of men. Remember Gideon. Gideon was a man who had gathered about 10,000 people, and then God reduced it to about 3,000 or so, and then God reduced it to 300. And then with those 300... By the way, they divided that force and they defeated this large army. So we're supposed to see in this, I believe, and we, as we're reading the whole word of God, and because this, this motive is repeated, you have a very small force of 300 defeating a very large force, that there's something important in this narrative that we should be paying attention to because God gave this similar narrative in a different circumstance in a history later on, he created circumstances, so this happened again, which means he's saying it to us again. Look at this, what happened here. All right. Now, so let's get into the story. Where it happened. So we live here in Holland, Michigan, right there, and this is where it happened over here in Israel. 
That's 6,116 miles away from us. If you were to drive at 100 miles an hour without stopping at all, it would take you over 60 hours to get over to Israel from here. That's kind of give you an idea of the distance between us and where this happened. So we have great physical distance from Israel. This makes it hard for us to associate with it. But there's, there's another part, too. It's the time distance. This is probably somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 years ago. So the distance between us and these events is huge, which means we are going to have difficulty associating with this situation. We have difficulty getting involved with this situation as we're reading it. Lots of things happening that we don't understand. Now, the four kings came from this area over here, and they came down to Canaan. This is where Abraham is. Now, I'll talk about this later, but this is over here is where the Tower of Babel was, right in about here. Now, this is what happened. There comes the four kings. They came down. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah came up to meet them, and the battle happened probably somewhere here, and then they fled back down into this area. Why do I want to point out where this is? Well, this is the Dead Sea right here. And where this happened, here's where they go after they capture a lot. They come down and go back. This whole area where this happened, in the passage we read earlier in Isaiah, this is where Edom is. And Basra is about right there. So that's the area that it's saying. Who is this that's coming up from this area? This warlike uh, man, this rescuer, this, this uh, warrior king. Who is this and where is he coming from? Um, so this is what happened. I hope this picture helps you just to kind of get an idea of the scope, kind of an idea of what's happening, kind of get an idea of the battle. The terrain is mountainous. Um, Coming up from the Dead Sea, one of the lowest points in the world, coming up, it's mountainous on both sides. There's a lot of rocks, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. And we also know at this time in history a lot of pits. And it's just kind of rough. But it's also a well-watered area. The Dead Sea at this time, which is deadly salty right now, was probably fresh uh, at this time in history. And there were also a lot of springs around there. So it would have been a much more uh, pleasant place to live, especially on that south side of the Dead Sea, which is why Lot wanted to go there. Now, the battle, these are the weapons that would have been used in this battle. I want you to notice something about these weapons. They are not made to, to cut clean. Um, they're made to do damage. That's their purpose. And this battle would have been absolutely bloody. It would have been horrible. To be involved in it would have been terrifying. I mean, I remember fighting with my brothers and sisters with sticks, and you're kind of afraid your finger was going to get whacked by one of those things. I, I really can't imagine if you're both holding these things and meaning it. All right. So the combatants. Let's go in a little bit into the people that are in the battle. It's an evil coalition versus a wicked one. And I'll get a little bit into this, but neither of these two groups is any good. Neither of them are God worshipers. Neither of them care about God. Both of them are in this war because they want stuff for themselves. 
Now, Ketelammer is the leader of the invading coalition of four kings. However, this guy, Amramphael, he's the first one mentioned in the passage, and that's interesting because he's the king of Shinar. This, this guy is the successor of Nimrod. He, um, he's the guy who established Babel back in chapter 11. So I think it's interesting that he names him first, even though we find out later that it's actually Ketelammer that's the more powerful king, which again, in the Bible, I believe is pointing us to something. This whole thing is supposed to have a typical or symbolic meaning to it. You're supposed to see something else than what's right on the surface. Um, and Nimrod is a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then you see there, his land is the land of Shinar. Now this means he was a great oppressor. This man was a powerful, mean, cruel ruler. And then it's, now Amramphel is following in his footsteps. This coalition continues the legacy of Nimrod as a powerful oppressors. They are the mighty hunters. They have a relationship with the five kings as their overmasters, their lords. They are oppressive. What Sodom and Gomorrah are experiencing at this time, despite their wickedness, is true oppression. They are ruled by an oppressor and an oppressive oppressor, someone who is cruel and an overlord. And as Lot moves into this area, he's moving in under the dominion, moving into this dominion that is oversaw by this cruel master. Now, the five kings, the king of Sodom, his name's Bera, and that means roughly in evil. The king of Gomorrah is Bersha, which means roughly in wickedness. The king of Adma is Shinab, son of Sin, and Sin here is the moon god deity, so we have an evil, wicked, idolater. And the king of Zeboam, Shemember, means something completely out of this line of thinking. Shem is strong. Now, if you've been going through this study, you know that God is promising to bless the nations through Shem. It's through Shem's seed, through Abraham specifically, that God is going to bless the nations. So despite evil, despite wickedness, and despite the idolatry that is overrunning the world, Shem is still strong. We don't know if these were actually their names. They can't find these names when they're doing archaeology. They don't know if these people, you know, they're, they're going to say they didn't exist. We can't find their names. Uh, there's actually another option, and that is this is what came to be known within the Hebrew communities as these men's names. Which, again, I think is another pointer that there's something here that's deeper than the surface level that God is trying to tell us. It, there is a terrifying fight that we've just read. I showed you those weapons with this purpose. I want you to understand it's a terrifying fight. The amount of bloodshed the idea that was communicated in that passage from Isaiah gives you a good idea. These people came out of this thing stained with blood. Their clothes stained with blood. Their arms stained with blood. And then there's this nightmare flight into 
an area that is full of tar pits and rocks and mountains. It is the stuff of nightmare, your worst nightmare, darkness, rocks, pits, and you're running for your life. These are solemn reminders, symbols, and omens of the judgment. Remember, this is before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a wake-up call for what's coming. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. It's Isaiah. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves and the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. They thought Catalamer was scary. They didn't know who was behind all of this, who was far more terrible than any earthly ruler could ever be. And they would find out soon when rock and fire fell out of the sky and wiped them from the face of the earth. For us, let us pause and understand that this is God's heart towards the world. This is where he's going to finish it all. This is where we're headed. But there's another side of the story that we're going to get into. But for a moment, let us remember, this is how it all ends for those who have not fled for safety into the descendant of Abraham's arms. Now, Abraham the Hebrew. So I told you, they kind of speak of him third person. They put him out here, and they say, Abraham the Hebrew. Now, we know that the children of Israel eventually become known as Hebrews, but this text and the way it's written, we know that this when it was, they, they actually had a very ancient narrative that they were taking this information from. It's a real narrative, whether it was written or spoken. Um, and so they call him Hebrew. And so the question is, why does they call him Hebrew? And so they go back and they study the languages way back then. And they try to figure out where did this come from. The most likely reason they call him Hebrew is the point to the fact that Abraham is not at all on the minds of either group in this fight. He is an outsider. They have this fight going on. Abraham's over here. They're really not thinking about Abraham. He's outside their, their realm. Now, Lot has moved into their realm. He's no longer an outsider in that sense, even though they will refer to him as an outsider later. But Abraham's really out of this. However, Abraham is more important, more powerful in his weakness, his 300 guys sitting under a tree in tents, is more powerful in his weakness than all of their force and power combined. Because, like God told Abraham, I am your great reward. Now, to give us a little more idea of how this outsider idea kind of builds throughout scripture. When Joshua is in Jericho, this is in Joshua 5, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Notice that answer. No. I'm an outsider. Now, was God going to help Israel? Absolutely. But God wanted him to understand something. Look, Joshua, I'm not in this fight because of you. And I'm not in this fight because of them. I'm in this fight because I'm going to make my great name known and my ability to save will be shown to the world. That's why I'm in this fight. And so Abraham here, I believe, I'm going to build this a little bit, but I believe he is typical of the coming Messiah. He's the outsider. He's out of the picture. The world's fighting its fights. He's out here. He loves. He cares. He's powerful. He can save. And he's going to come do it. Like Abraham, Jesus delivers his people from evil. That's the name of my sermon this morning is deliver us from evil. This, of course, from the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think it's wonderful that that is sent up to God as a request from him. Lord, save. Deliver us from evil. Christ is stronger than the mighty hunters. But more importantly, he's stronger than the mighty hunter. Who is it that goes around like the mighty hunter of roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour? Who is the serpent? Who is the one who is represented as a dragon devouring? It is Satan. It is the devil. And Jesus is stronger than that one. I think Nimrod, I think Amramphel, this whole coalition, they represent to us the power and might of the spiritual forces that have the earth under their dominion. And even when we realize we don't like it and we want out, we're crushed every time by the power that is set against us every single time time. We cannot escape the power that's over us. Why? Because while you might refer to Satan as the wicked one, we are the evil ones. We are related. We are the same. So although we don't like some of the discomforts that come with being under the rule of Satan and under his dominion, yet we are connected by a bond that we cannot free ourselves from. We need an outsider to be involved in this fight for us. Jesus says this, listen to this. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is Jesus. It's like if I come in and I bind the strong man, I can forgive sins. I can change the dynamics. I can take over. But notice this. 
Jesus' mother, this is a little later in the passage, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside uh, seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here, here, here are my mother my brothers and looking about at those for whoever sorry for whoever does the will of god he is my brother and sister and mother the strong man who can bind the strong man and plunder his house if you are believing and trusting in his work counts you as his mother and brother and sister. He counts you as his kin. And that means he can save you. And he will save you. And he will not be thwarted. Now imagine Lot's predicament. He's been captured by these cruel people. You know, in this time when people were captured in battle, um, they would be marched, single file, tied together, and usually nude or nearly nude. Remember what we talked about, rocks, rough terrain, and your sun hits those rocks, they get hot, and they're being marched, tied together through this night and day through these type of terrain, stumbling, getting bruised. How do you think Lot felt? Oh, what a fool. I moved here, and I don't know where Abraham even is now, and now look where I am. Is there any way out? Is there it my folly? Maybe he thought that. We wonder because he moves back to Sodom. We're like, well, what are you doing? But I even think there's something for us to get from that. All right, notice this, Psalm 107. By the way, Psalm 107 is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. The whole psalm, I read it, love it. So some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. Do you think, I think Lot despised the plans of the Most High. I think he is subjected that now to bitter labor that he stumbled, like I said, and there was no one there to help anymore. He was alone in the... It says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he breaks down the gates of bronze and cuts through the bars of iron. Have you done stupid stuff? Have you despised God's word towards you and decided to go out and in your own wisdom sought for happiness, sought for safety, sought for a comfortable spot in this world and found there, instead of all those things, a dreadful place and find yourself bound in many sins or one particular sin. And you might be tempted to think, because I made these stupid mistakes, because it's my fault God doesn't care, and there's no salvation on the way. 
take heart in Psalm 107. Notice that our Savior, the one, the outsider, the one who's outside, who we might even be tempted to forget is there. Or Abel. Surely Lot saw this massive army. Surely he saw their power, their might, and their destructive ability. And he knew Abraham only had 300 men. I don't think Lot was thinking, you know, any time now, I bet Abraham's going to come around the corner and beat this army and get me out of here. I don't believe it. He's outside. We are tempted to forget this is true. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become a much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the outsider who counts us his kin, and he will not leave us to the power of the evil one to the power of Satan, the Nimrod of our age, the Nimrod of our world. Notice this, no, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor Powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. There is no force great enough. There is no power intense enough to hold us captive if we are in Christ Jesus. The question is, do we believe that? And let me ask you this. How do you think, you know, we talked about that terrible battle um, that Sodom and Gomorrah's kings had to go through. But what about Chetelam or Chetelam or there? I mean, he's He's sitting there at, at ease, big army, just took a bunch of captives. Everything's going well. Out of nowhere, a group of 150 on that side and a group of 150 on that side come out of nowhere and wipe them off the map. Do we believe this? Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You know, if you're in Satan's army, it also ends... There is no power in heaven, and there's no power on earth, and there's no place to hide that can separate you from the anger of your creator if you are not safe in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from it. And not you're putting it off, and not you're trying to forget, and not any other way will separate you from it if you are not Jesus' kin. Do you believe that? So here's a question. 
And by the way, I do want to point out before I go to this, I'm going to go back a second here. Um, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were delivered by Abraham too. You know, Jesus' coming to the earth has the real impact of propitiation, bringing us into a relationship with God as his children. But it also has this other impact on the world that is also beneficial. And in many ways, the song that says um, that Jesus Christ came to make his righteousness known is true. And there is this sense in which the word of God has made us, as the other song says, begin to believe that our, the slave is our brother. There is this impact that Jesus' salvation has had on the world that is good, that is beneficial for the world. But Sodom and Gomorrah are being preserved for fire because they did not come to trust in the God of Abraham. They had an opportunity right here, right now. They were given a warning, and God's going to send Abraham to them with a message. And he sent Lot to them. He is telling them there is a warning. There is a foretelling. He doesn't just drop fire on them. He gives them an opportunity. He gives them space, just like he's giving the world today after Christ has come and worked his deliverance. But eventually, the fire is still going to fall. Now, when we, that is, when we as those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ consider the fight with sin, which thought compels a greater reaction? The power of your sin? Lust, habit, fear, guilt, shame, the cost of change. Or the power of Christ to save, his love, his power, his grace, his mercy, his will, his promises, his authority, his work. Which compels a more strong reaction? Because it should be in comparison to the power available. The power available to lust, habit, fear, guilt, shame, and the cost of change. Jesus mentions this. You're going to have to count the cost. Are indeed great. They are very powerful. They are able to oppress us and hold us in bondage. But... The power of Christ to save is by far the greater power and therefore should elicit from our hearts a response of trust. But does it? I want to challenge us on this. We've given too much to the power of sin and too little to the power of Christ to save. Christ can save with many or few. Christ can come with his 300 and defeat millions. He's one day coming with his 10,000. His available power is far superior to the need that we have in any given moment, is far greater than what we need even in that moment to be brought out. Jesus Christ is sufficient for us. He can overcome these things in us. And you're like, well, you know, I prayed. And I've asked God to deliver me from this. I've worked on it, and I've tried to be delivered from it, and it still has me in bondage. Let me ask you some other questions. One, do you call on the name of the Lord? And you're like, yes, yeah, so I pray that God would deliver me from this. Now, do you call on the name of the Lord? What do I mean by that? 
there is a difference between I'm sick and tired of this. I don't want this in my life anymore. God, take it away. And God, save me. We'll go into that a little more. Do you believe that he has power to deliver? Do you believe he has power to deliver? You know, Jesus often asked those who came to him for healing if they believed he could do it. You're like, why do you ask that? You know, it is actually pretty easy if I was a blind man and I heard that Jesus could heal blind people for me to go to Jesus to see if he could do it. It's a very different thing if I go to Jesus believing he will do it. And this is why the centurion, Jesus says, this man. We need to pay attention to these one-offs. The only time Jesus says, this man, got it, this man gets it. What did he say? He says, I, I have power. I can tell my servants to go here and do this, and I can tell them to go there and do that. You have that power. You can do the same thing. That's the difference. He wasn't sending someone to Jesus because he believed that maybe he would find out if Jesus could heal. He was sending someone to Jesus because he believed Jesus could do it. Often when we're calling on the name of the Lord, it is not because we believe he can do it. It is because we're testing to see if he can do it. The whole posture of our engagement with him is one of unbelief. You show me, you can deliver me from this sin. I will believe you are the Messiah. God does sometimes answer those kinds of prayers. But friends, you've got to get to the point where you say, Lord, save me to a God who can. Why are you asking to be delivered? Like I said, many come asking for deliverance as a test. Jesus, can you do this? And you're like, well, then it depends. It all depends on my faith. Well, that puts me in a predicament, doesn't it? You know, we are in a predicament. Our natural posture to God is one of unbelief. We naturally do not believe he will do the things he says he will do. It is as natural as waking up and breathing. It comes quicker than we have time to think through it. It is there. It is present. It's called a sin nature. We don't believe God. We don't believe him automatically. We don't believe him implicitly. When he says things, we tend to doubt what he says to us. And we don't act on it because we don't believe he is speaking truth to us. Let us go back to this story. Abraham is exercising faith as he goes out to beat these people. He is exercising on the promise of God that God would bless all nations through him. He's going throughout and he's going to battle believing God will do what God has promised to do based on faith. He has the victory in that situation. Lot, based on unbelief, finds himself in bondage under the power of Satan, under the power of an evil ruler. But Lot is distinctly different than the people with him because he is one of God's. He is. 
He's, he's foolish, and he's got himself in a predicament, but he is one of God's. And God will deliver him. He will have him out. But never no, don't fail to notice that God allowed him to be put into the predicament. God allowed him to be taken captive. God allowed him to be dragged, drugged through a wilderness. God allowed him to be battered and beaten. God allowed him to lose everything. God allowed him to have all those things happen to him because God wanted his attention and God would have it. See, it's not really dependent on, all our, on our faith, is it? Lot would be saved because Lot was God's. He would be brought up. It is God who works. It was God who was working in Abraham. It was God who was working in the whole situation to make sure Lot was saved. What then does faith play in this role? If you want to understand faith, there's the song, The Lord is My Salvation. If you want to understand faith, faith is about getting to know God. not getting things done. God gets things done. Always does. Faith is about you getting to know the God who gets things done. The God who saves. And if you're trying to muster up a faith in something that you don't believe in and you don't really want to get to know, there is no faith involved. If you want to know this God who came down to the earth as a man and dwelt among us and we saw the glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, if you want to know him, then your faith will become active because the very fact you want to know him means that you believe he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the moment you believe he is... You find out he is, and when you know he is, he begins to do and to act in your life. But guess what? He's still there. He was acting and doing all along. You're just getting to know him, which is wonderful, which makes you suddenly see that of the whole universe and all creation, as dark as it is, is screaming the glory of a majestic, beautiful creator who loves and cares for humankind in a very particular and loving way. And he loves you as an individual and knows you in a very particular and loving way. And there is nothing that's been hidden from his eyes. There's no circumstance that you've experienced. There's nothing Thing that has happened to you or will happen to you that he doesn't know, that he hasn't felt, that he has not experienced with you, and he wants you to know him the way he is, not the way you naturally would think he is. You naturally think God's a Nimrod, but it's Satan. God is the God of salvation who will rescue his people from all their distresses and deliver them safe into his glory, the presence of his power and glory. God will save you. Do you believe that? Because he wants to. You don't have to twist his arm. 
Oh, that we all, oh, that I would understand this better. Oh, I was doubting God last night. My heart rate was up. I was full of anxiety. I didn't believe he was going to be present. thought I had to figure it out on my own. And this is the message he gave me to come preach to you all this morning. I believe in the message of the word of God's power. I have nothing for you. If I preach to you Christ Jesus and him crucified and then think that I can apply these truths into your heart, I'm talking about faith here. I can't make you suddenly go from doubting God to believing him from a place where you don't believe he exists to a place you do. A place of unbelief to a place of faith. A place of holding on to a place of release. A place of work to a place of rest. Only the Spirit of God can teach you these things. But by his grace, he's offered it through my voice. But please, please accept it from his hands. Father, I thank you. Your grace is sufficient for us. It is made strong in our weakness. Lead us to yourself. Help us to know you are the powerful, the mighty warrior, Savior, who is, oh, Father, it's coming, our Prince of Peace. Open our eyes and our hearts. Help us to know, love, and experience your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord be with you always. Amen.